You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. today's podcast, I traveled to Miami, Florida, the home of the museum dedicated to the 2506 Assault Brigade. Located in Miami's Little Havana neighborhood, the museum, popularly known as the Bay of Pigs Museum, is a must-visit for anyone interested in this era of intelligence history. I sat down with the president of the museum, Felix Rodriguez, whose long career in intelligence, both working for and outside of the CIA, spans over three decades. The following is part one of this spycast. So you were a teenager, you weren't particularly old when, when Castro came to power inside Cuba. There's been debates by historians, whether Cuban historians or American or anybody else, about how communist Castro actually was from the very beginning. You've, you've been clear from the outset, you believe Castro was a communist from the get-go. Well, his brother was a communist all along. Castro used communism as the only means to perpetuate himself in power. He knew that was the only system that would allow him to do that. Actually, I went to school in Herkiomen Prep in Pennsburg, Pennsylvania, in 1954. And then in 1958, my parents went out on vacation to Mexico, and I met them there for New Year's Eve. And I had a ticket to go back to Havana then for a few <coughs> days. Nevertheless, while we were there, that's when Castro took over. Our home in Havana was ransacked. Uh, they never returned from the, it turned out to be a very long vacation for them. Uh, I came back to school and then for a spring vacation I went back to Mexico to meet them. And that's where I learned they were recruiting some people for what it was called the Anti-Communist Legion of the Caribbean. And that was taking place in the Dominican Republic. At that time I was uh, 17 years old and actually had to, uh, and my father knew of that, I had to forfeit my father's signature to get a visa from the Dominican Republic because I was too young to get a visa on my own. And uh, I told him, you know, that uh, I wanted to go and he didn't want to sign because he said he might be signing my death sentence. So I told him, right, I was going to sign for him. And he did agree to that, but he said he would not do it and uh, himself. And actually I arrived in the Dominican Republic on the 4th of July of 1959. 
And we joined the uh, training camps that were in Caldera, so that's a naval military base in Dominican Republic. And then I was supposed to go in, in a plane uh, to Cuba. Uh, allegedly, Gutierrez Menoyo had uh, overtaken the city of Trinidad, which happens to be uh, a false situation. He actually double-crossed all of the people who had faith in him, and he was actually working for Castro. And when the plane arrived, everybody was captured. I didn't go because a, uh, a very fr good friend of his, my family, son was also there, Roberto Martin Perez, and his father, who was a police lieutenant colonel in Cuba, uh, came to the helicopter before they took us from Caldera to San Isidro Air Force Base and told me that I was too young and his son had more experience than I did and one of us had to go with him. So he took me out of the helicopter, his son went, he landed in Cuba, he was captured, and he spent the next 28 years in a Cuban prison. Wow. And the guy who took uh, my place, uh, actually, he, my position was to refuel the plane, put oil and gas and come back on the plane, continue to go back and forth. Well, uh, the guy who did, uh, took my position actually was killed uh, defending the plane when it was known to them that there was a double cross by Menoyu. I contracted hepatitis, finally came back to the state in December. Uh, I recovered, I went back to school, I finally graduated in 1960. And I applied to the University of Miami for engineering, but then when I got to Miami, uh, after June 1960, we learned about this training camp somewhere in Latin America. Uh, they were preparing to overthrow Castro, and instead of going to the university, I decided this was more important, so I joined when I was 19, uh, what later became the Bay of Pig invasion. So I, I want to ask you a little bit about the Dominican Republic because I think there's some interesting things that happened during that time. The, the mission itself fails uh, mainly because Castro knew they were coming. Because, because he had information, uh, like you said, the double cross, right. that he knew you were coming. Um, but the reason you went to the Dominican Republic in the first place was that there were actually Cuban forces inside the Dominican trying to uh, take Trujillo's government down. Yes, when I arrived, what, what happened was, before that, uh, Fidel had sent some uh, guerrillas into the Dominican Republic. They arrived in two different ways. One was a plane who landed in Constanza, and about 50 guerrillas uh, jumped out of the plane. And actually, they were, I understand there were like uh, 800 that went by boat. And it was actually taken under fire by the Dominican Air Force. And they killed about 600 of them in the water. And 200 of them made it inside the island. So actually, when I arrived in there, uh, some of the Cubans that were there, including my friend Roberto Martin Perez, was out in the field uh, fighting this guerrilla. And they were basically totally terminated. They received absolutely no support from the Dominican farmers. and. Uh, most of them, all of them, will actually capture uh, or kill. I want to ask you about the 2506 Brigade. That is the, the, the formal name for the, the Bay of Pigs invaders. I, I think the name itself has some, some interesting background. Why 2500 as everyone's numbers were? Can you talk a little bit about the, the deception campaign behind that? Well, they started numbering the brigades so they will portray to be bigger. They started at 2501 in the island of Giuseppe across from the, in the west coast. And to portray they were bigger. So about 70-some uh, members that were there. Uh, the number 2506 for the brigade comes about because the, the guy whose number assigned to 2506 
Carlos Rodriguez Santana, he was the first martyr. He was the first one who died uh, in this endeavor. When they went to Guatemala, they were a group of them trying to locate a better training camps. And they were moving around the Guatemalan countryside in the mountains. And this guy went down a hill, he, unfortunately, and he was killed from a very deep uh, high hill uh, mountain. And it took even several days to recover his body. Since he was the first casualty and his number was 2506, that's where the brigade took the name, Assault Brigade 2506. Actually, a lot of people ask why uh, the president commissioned the CIA for a military landing where the CIA really had very little expertise on it and it was supposed to be done mostly with the, uh, actually with the Pentagon. Pentagon is the one who had the, the, uh, the expertise on, on military landing like the one that took place. And the reason was that it was not supposed to be a military landing at the Bay of Peaks. The original concept was uh, drawn from Eisenhower administration. It was supposed to be a guerrilla warfare in the Escambride. And that's when uh, Eisenhower sent you know, the CIA uh, used a colonel who graduated from West Point. He was of Filipino origin, uh, by Napoleon Valeriano. Uh, he was very successful uh, waging a war against the Hawk in the Philippines. And uh, when he, I got to Guatemala, uh, he started uh, to train three groups. One was called the Great Teams, then the Black Teams, and the Occupational Force. I was part of the Great Team. Most of us were young students. Uh, I was 19 at the time. And uh, they trained us like the Special Forces of the Brigade. And our mission was to land in Cuba uh, clandestinely, either by boat or by air, and to start recruiting people for the Escambray Mountain for guerrilla warfare. There were already guerrillas in the Escambride. And once we were successful and started bringing recruits into the Escambride, then they would dispatch into the area what they call the black teams. Black teams was 25 men, teams that were very highly trained, explosive, demolition, military training, air reception, and maritime reception. They were supposed to receive weapons and start arming this guerrilla unit. And once we had enough people in the area, to be able to secure a small territory where Fidel could not come in with his troops, then they will come what they call the occupational force with the rest of the brigade and a civilian provisional government. A powerful radio station was going to be set up in the mountain with a power plant, and that was going to give to the world the news that they, we had a civilian government in arms in there, you know, with projections of free election as soon as we took power within a year, and uh, that would be the end of it, because it will be recognized by the United States and the OAS, the Organization of American States. Uh, nevertheless, when President Kennedy was elected president, uh, then he learned about this plan. Of course, as soon as the president takes over, all of this type of mission goes to the new president. Even though he's not swearing yet, he has an input in everything right. that's being done. Uh, so they decided to, he decided to continue with the operation but he didn't want to have uh, something that was already designed by the Republicans. So his original uh, change was uh, they took out the Filipino uh, colonel out of Guatemala, they brought a, a colonel from the Pentagon, and then they disbanded the black teams and formed, really it was a reinforced battalion, but they call it a brigade, thinking that when we landed, people would be added to our unit, we will very easily make a brigade. And the, the great teams, our team stayed the same as the Special Forces of the Brigade or the infiltration team. We kept our nucleus the same. So in December, we moved to Panama for uh, late December, and we sp spent New Year's Eve in Panama for 
additional military training, especially in Soviet military equipment. So uh, that's, that's the big change. Now, the, the new consecutive President Kennedy was the takeover the city of Trinidad. The city of Trinidad was a city that was highly anti-Castro. They have very little sympathy for Fidel Castro in that area. It was right next to the Escambray Mountain, which means if anything happened, it was very easy for us to go into the Escambray and join the guerrillas in there. It had a hospital between the Escambray Mountain and Trinidad that Batista had built for people with respiratory problems called Topes de Collante. And that building was housing like 2,000 2, guerrillas that were captured during all of these operations, mm -hmm. which meant that we already had 2,000 men that were highly trained already. They had military training. And we were bringing with us 10,000 additional weapons to, to inc increment our brigade with 10,000 men. Now that actually, you know, they had the Casilda port right next to it, so the brigade didn't have to go on a military landing that they did. Uh, they would just both go right to the piers, and they would just disembark directly into the piers, make it much easier. It had a runway that could be expanded, and our B-26 could operate from there. Uh, well, both, of course, was bringing fuel, ammunition, everything for the B-26 to operate uh, from, from land. Now, as, as of the 1st of April, Unfortunately, uh, the president received very ill advice from his uh, advisors, uh, claiming that taking over a city uh, would not help uh, when they deny the participation of the United States. The press will be there, uh, will be a big exposure, and they changed them for the Bay of Pig. And it is ridiculous. I don't think anybody could believe that a uh, expeditionary force of exile by themselves, they could amaze uh, tanks, they could amaze airplanes, right. landing craft. It's impossible. Everybody had to know that it was the United States behind our operation. But unfortunately, he it went down to that advice, and they eliminated Trinidad, and they went to the Bay of Pig. Now, yeah. to be successful in the Bay of Pig, they needed to control the air, 100%. Right. Uh, there was only two roads of access. There were swamps on both sides. We controlled the air, Castro could not bring any troops by boat because we will sink it. And then with two roads of access, if we control the air, <coughs> it will be bombed and it will be very difficult for them to move in. Then in a shorter period of time, they will do the same thing. They will have the radio station there, they will bring in the provisional government. It's going to give news to the world that we had a government in arms, a civilian government in arms, and uh, promising a free election within a year after taking over. And that will be the end of Castro. You know, the OAS uh, will recognize our provisional government, so will the United States. Probably 95% American troops, 5% Latin American troops, and that was the end of Castro. Right. But unfortunately, uh, political things always interfere in this type of planning. Uh, there was an original bombardment before the Bay of Pigs landing that eliminated like 90% of Castro's Air Force. Now, the second airstrike that was supposed to eliminate the other 10%, including the T-33 jet trainers and 86s, never took place. It was diminished because Adelaide Stevenson was not briefed on the operation. And actually, our B-26s had a different configuration from the Bay of Pigs, uh, from the Castro's uh, Air Force. The, the reason they used B-26s from the Alabama National Guard is because Cuba had B-26s in their inventory at the Air Force. And uh, unfortunately, their, uh, our planes were a little bit more modern. It had a metal nose, our uh, 50 caliber machine gun. Uh, eight of them was in the nose. And then on the wing, we had the rocket and, and the uh, bombs. Mm -hmm. And Castro's Air Force had the, the machine guns on the wings. It had nothing in the nose. It was a plastic nose. 
So during the first bombardment, they were able to shoot down one of our planes, and Raul Roa, who was the Cuban representative at the UN, started presenting the facts against what Adelaide Stevenson was saying, what the administration was saying, that they were defecting planes from the Castro's Air Force, attacking target, and then leaving the area. And even they had one of our planes to come to the United States claiming that he had defected from the uh, Cuban Air Force. Right. But when Raul Roa started presenting this difference between the two planes, of course, then Adelaide Stevenson contacted his administration. When he learned that he had been lied, he told them that unless they put a stop to the airstrike, he will resign to the mm -hmm. UN, which will be a disaster in a moment of, uh, of crisis like that. Right. So they did put a stop to that strike. We did not control the air. And Castro T-33 were able to sink the boat that was bringing all the ammunition, the mm -hmm. fuel, the radio station, all the web, extra weapons and everything. And there was not a contingency plan to resupply the brigade, even though we had Task Force Alpha just in front of the Bay of Peak. We comprehended the USS Essex uh, carrier. We had two submarines. There were four destroyers and several landing craft with Marine on board. Mm -hmm. And our, the planes that they had on the USS Essex, uh, their insignia were painted black, so there was no name U.S. Air Force or anything right. like that, because they were supposed to be in, in support of us. That didn't happen. Uh, when they sank all this supply that we had, there was no contingency plan. The brigade fought very bravely for 72 hours. Uh, they had ammunition for 24 hours, and they extended as much as they could. Uh, they took every single position that were assigned to them in the first 24 hours, but then when they ran out of ammunition in three days, they had no other alternative, and they didn't surrender, but they tried to you know, go into the swamp to try to survive, and the results everybody's knowing to everybody, over 95% of the brigade was captured, and only a handful of them were able to make it to Havana and, and out of Cuba. Some of them made it out in boats, and things of that sort, and uh, it, it was the disaster of the Bay of Pigs. Let me, let, me, let me ask you a little bit about, uh, beyond the, the lack of air support, which is, you know, the key to all of this. I, I thought I found it was amazing that the agency, the CIA, planned this mission, thinking about Guatemala in 1954 as as a as a model for the invasion of Cuba. And there's just so many dramatic differences between the situation in Guatemala in 54 and the situation in Cuba in 1961. I mean, Guatemala had like what, less than 10,000 soldiers under Arbenz's command. The Cubans had a quarter of a million or something close to that. And certainly the capabilities of the Guatemalan president to control his forces versus Castro's. No, but remember, the, at the very beginning, it was not like that. The very beginning was a guerrilla warfare, mm -hmm. which is completely different to the Guatemalan situation. Right. So at that time, the CIA did not uh, follow what they were doing in Guatemala. They were doing something completely different, supporting a guerrilla uh, in the Escambray Mountains for the process I already described. Then when President Kennedy changed, that was beyond the CIA decision. They had to go into withdrawing that plan. And then when the administration changed that again, they had to go into what was you know, the right. Bay of Pig invasion. So, Che Guevara, so the circumstances that drove it to that situation. I mean, historically, you look at the Bay of Pigs and, and you could argue it's the best thing that possibly could have happened for Fidel Castro to maintain Oh, absolutely. Power. He was able to consolidate his power after that. And as a matter of fact, when they had that meeting in, in Punta del Este, in, uh, in Montevideo, Uruguay, Che Guevara thank, uh, gave thank you to uh, Richard Woodman, who was representing the United States, to tell President Kennedy that thanks to the Bay of Pig, they had consolidated the Cuban Revolution. Because no one would, at that point, stand up against Castro after what right. had happened to the Bay of Pig. See, the, one of the reasons, because 
See, we had all together in the books here that there were about 6,000 recruits, but they were never able to be trained or sent over. And the reason they had to hurry up the invasion was the fact that Cuba had pilots already trained, mixed pilots already trained, and they were already the mix in Cuba in boxes. And they didn't want to wait until they were operational because that would be a completely different ballgame. We didn't have any Cuban trained in jet airplanes, and, and then it would be a different situation altogether. So they had to launch the invasion before Castro had the capability of using mix with Cuban pilots. I, I want to ask you, a lot of historians have pointed out, and still do to this day, uh, that the, one of the biggest problems with uh, all the attempts on Castro, whether it's Bay of Pigs or everything that comes afterwards, and even to the modern day, was the infiltration by Cuban intelligence of the different resistance movements, whether it was within the exile community here, whether it was within even the gray teams, or even the resistance groups in Cuba itself, such as the MMR. Um, did you see that as a, 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 a game changer, as a dramatic problem that you had to overcome constantly? Was the ability of Cuban intelligence to infiltrate the different communities that were fighting against Castro? Well, they have been, at that time they were not as good as they were later on, but they were. Uh, there were people infiltrated with us. For example, in the infiltration team, the great team, we have uh, Benigno Perez Vivanco, who was a, a former Castro uh, lieutenant. And he was a hardworking guy in the base. He was member of one of the infiltration team, and he was working for Castro. Of course, when he landed, his team was immediately captured, and then they used him to go to prison to try to identify other members that they had picking up after the Bay of Pig, because Benigno knew the true names that we were uh, going, but all of us went with alias name in Cuba, so by the name they could not get us. So they tried to use him in a different prison to physically identify us by our faces in there. You actually volunteered uh, to go back into Cuba. You, you had spent uh, some time at the Venezuelan embassy after Bay of Pigs, and then were finally exfiltrated out. You, no, you had, before that, let me give you yeah. a little, little anecdote. While I was in Panama with my friend, a friend of mine, Segundo Borges, and I, we contacted the CIA, one of the CIA officers in there, and we offered to volunteer to kill Castro, because we thought that would shorten the war. So when we came to Miami in January of 1961, actually they authorized that operation, and we used actually a boat, a very luxurious jet. It was only used for that operation one time. It was never been seen again in our operation. And later we learned it did belong to Sergeant Schreifer, a relative of yeah. President Kennedy. It was a white boat, air conditioning inside, great. Uh, we had a Ukrainian, Romanian crew and one American captain. All the weapons that they were using were from, from the Eastern Bloc, from the Communist Bloc. And they, were, they gave me a, a German rifle with a telescopic sight, 20 rounds of ammunition. They added a radio operator, his name Javier Soto. Presently he's one of the state, the Dade County Commissioner here. And uh, we, three times, we tried to get to Cuba. We were supposed to have a reception team, a boat to pick us up close to Varadero Beach. The first time, there was nobody there. The second time, there was a huge wood boat. And they flashed it with a light. There was looked to be nobody on board. We returned. On the third time, uh, the boat broke. The engine broke, just leaving Key West. We came back. And then after that, nobody gave me any explanation. They told me to add up two more men to my team. I will be going in as the uh, chief of the infiltration team for Las Villas, and they took the rifle away from me with the 20 rounds of ammunition. 
I mean, the, the plan was for you to move to a place in Havana overlooking where Castro would be. Yeah, they already had a place. They already rifle. had a place located because they told me not to touch this site. The site was already pre-sighted to the distance I was going to shoot him. So not to mess around with this site. But unfortunately, they changed their mind and that didn't happen. That could have probably shortened the war tremendously. Well, yeah, by decades. Uh, right. So when you, when you got back after Bay of Pigs, you, you worked unofficially uh, for the Miami CIA station here, and it was called right. JM well, Wave. When I came back, actually, I, I, I arrived after spending uh, four and a half or five and a half months in Venezuela, an embassy in Havana, where I did seek political asylum and was granted to me. Uh, on the 13th of September of 1961, they finally gave us safe conduct and arrived in, in Caracas, Venezuela. I stayed about a week in there, and I already had my, my pass, student passport with my visa in it, that my mother was able to send to the embassy through the Venezuelan consul, Josefina Che. Uh, so I had already the visa, the, the guy who was with the CIA in, in Caracas uh, provided me the, the funds to buy the ticket. I got into Miami, by the way, they got me into Opalaca for about three days of debriefing, uh, and then I started working with the agency again. Um, because I have left uh, a contact the second time that I infiltrated Cuba, because actually I landed in Cuba in late February, of 1961, but I left for three days in uh, in um, exactly on March, at the end of March, trying to bring some weapons through uh, through Camaway. Uh, of course, they were they were not able to get the boat on time to bring the weapons in, but I did went back into Cuba through Camaway, and I left that thing open, and that was the only thing they had at that time. So we reestablished contact with that group, and then actually within a month after back in Miami, I was back into Cuba. Uh, in, in the Camaway in area, bringing in things, ammunition, equipment, but it was mostly for intelligence uh, purpose than for anything else. I guess they gave us the weapon to keep up uh, happy. Right. I, I want to ask you a little bit about the Miami station, because this is a unique CIA station, certainly because, you know, CIA stations are supposed to operate overseas. The Miami station was on, you know, domestic soil. Um, it, it had some really unique concepts. I mean, there, there are stories from Miami history that at one point, it was the second or third largest employer right. in all the city of Miami. And Miami today wouldn't be what it was economically without all the new housing and real estate and businesses that were open because of the Miami station. Um, and it had a, a station chief, a man named Ted Shackley, who would go on to Good be very famous, very famous inside the, the agency. And you'd run into him later on in Vietnam. Some interesting stories you tell in your book is about the relationship between uh, people training under the, the Miami station in South Florida and local law enforcement yep. and kind of a, some underhanded kind of a yeah, they have, they agreement. Have arrangement to, to deal with that. Actually, the, here at that time was the only station in the United States soil. In, in, in the United States, we only have bases like New York or, or San Francisco or Chicago. We don't have a station. Now, the reason the Miami station was called a station was because we run from Miami intelligence officer in the Caribbean area where we do not have uh, embassies, or really we don't have CIA people mm -hmm. assigned to, like Martinique, Fort France, Dominique, all of those islands. So all of those areas are controlled from Miami. That's why is it called a station, mm -hmm. because of the agents that we run in that area where we do not have uh, actually a station right. in there. But it was the biggest employer one. Now, we had phone, telephone call that we could call whenever we had problems. Uh, whenever we left in a boat, uh, the boat will have a, a code 
that we will give, if we are stopped by the Coast Guard, we'll give them that code and they will let us continue on. Uh, I recall one time that uh, I was going down to the Keys and we had a 57 recoilless rifle and the bullets are huge. And we were stopped by one of the pa patrolmen in, in the Keys. And he looked at the 57, already we, we were told what, what to tell him, you know, it was a 57 recoilless. We told him that's legal, it's a single action weapon, and we are going to duck hunting. And he said, you can call this number, you know. And this guy called the number. He was not, they verified to him they were legal, no problem to let us go. And it's a 57 millimeter, so this is a pretty significantly yeah, sized round. Yeah, the, the round is about two feet long. It's basically an anti-tank weapon that you're right. going duck hunting with. That's great. Um, I, I want to ask you about, and I'm putting air quotes around this. Obviously, people listening to this can't see my air quotes, about your role in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, well, at that time, actually, what I have done is, I, I decided to leave the agency and get married to my present wife of 53 years. And I was working, first of all, in a company called Ace Letter Service, who did propaganda for the hotel for, uh, during the season. At the time, the hotel only opened during the season here. Now it's open year-round. And then my uncle was able to get me a raise from $1 an hour to $1.25, which is a company called Tobin Packaging Company. So they were dealing with meat and, and uh, hams and things like that. While I was there, and I already had married my present wife, I got a call from an agency guy, uh, Tom Klein, and he asked me to meet him when he finished work. Uh, we had no idea that the crisis was taking place at the time. Uh, so I met him in the parking lot of the, across from the University of Miami, Howard and Johnson in there. I remember sitting in his car, and he looked at me and said, Felix, uh, the Marines are going to land in Cuba and we need you. So I look at him and say, Tom, if the Marines are going to land in Cuba, what the hell do you need me for? <laughs> he said, well, uh, you know how to operate a radio beacon. We need you to parachute near a Soviet base in Santa Clara. Uh, when, and we want you to set up this radio beacon in a predetermined location that we'll give you in a map uh, with a team and just turn the, the signal on so that our Air Force can hit with precision the base. So at that point in time, I agree. And from that point, he told me I couldn't even call my wife. Normally, I used to pick up my wife in downtown when she was working uh, for a radio station that transmitted to Cuba. Mm -hmm. And uh, they put me in a safe house. I recommended two guys, and they brought the guys to the house. And then we started doing the basic training from a table, the three point of contact, because I had never jumped on a plane. And neither did the two guys that I was with. And of course, my wife waited and waited. When I didn't show up, she took a bus back to our apartment. And then that evening, that was when President Kennedy I spoke about the, uh, the crisis, and she told me later, you know, she figured out they had something to do with yeah. that. So I stayed in that White House, in that house, safe house, for several days. Uh, and the day they were bringing in the parachute and everything, it just coinci coincidental was when Khrushchev backed down with the ship, right. and then it was defused. So from there on, and then I continued to work with the agency. But if the invasion had taken place, you would have dropped into Cuba and helped the Air Force target yes. specific Soviet sites. Afterwards, you actually, you, you, you were in the U.S. Army for a short time. You resigned and actually joined a group in Nicaragua for several years. Right. Well, when the president was here, I think president, I, I am convinced that President Kennedy was assassinated by, by Castro. Okay. Uh, he, after the Bay of Pig, he took full responsibility for the operation. And he became, he and his brother became obsessed uh, with Fidel Castro's permanence in power. And when we gave him the flag that is here at the, at the uh, museum in custody, he promised to return that flag very soon in Free Cuba, which I think he really meant it. And what he did was he immediately opened the Armed Forces of the United States for the Cubans. All the officers of the brigade, they gave them uh, 
to go to Fort Benning, Georgia for basic officer training. And then he opened basically like Fort Jackson uh, and in Kentucky for regular troops. So what they call the Cuban unit. And brigade members and non-brigade members, all from the, from the Miami area. So I went to Fort Benning. We were already second lieutenant commissioned by, we were not city, citizens, we were not even residents. Nevertheless, we were wearing the United States uh, Armed Forces uh, officer uniform. And you selected where you wanted to be. I selected the Army, so I was the second lieutenant in the U.S. Army. People who were in our Air Force selected the Air Force, and they had the U.S. Air Force uniform. Some of them selected the Marine Corps, and they were in U.S. Marine Corps uniform. And some of them who were in our Navy was wearing the Navy uniform. Now, actually, what they wanted to give us was the OCS, Officer Candidate School Training, because a lot of, of us didn't have military training whatsoever to be able to be an officer. But they could not call it OCS because we were already second lieutenant. We were already officers. So what they did, they took the training, the OCS training, exactly like it was designed for, for sergeants, major, whatever, and they call it SOTP, Special Officer Training Program. So we went through that training for less than a year, about nine months, eight months. And before it ended, I was supposed to go for intelligence training in Fort Halliburton, in Virginia. But then Dr. Artime visited us in Fort Benning and he asked me to resign my commission because he wanted me to join him, this special operation in, uh, out of Central America. And he told me that the president was committed. And definitely this time, the last time, we blamed the American because we had no input in the direction of our operation. This time, we will be directing our own operation. Either we, we win or we fail on our own, and we were going to be given everything that we needed. So I asked him, Manolo, what guarantee do I have that the, uh, the government is really behind this after what happened at the Bay of Pig? So he asked me, what guarantee do you want? I said, well, you want me to resign the, the army and go with you? Give me this training you want me to give in a motel. Give it to me in Fort Benning, Georgia, in U.S. Army uniform. And if they give it to me there, I'll resign and I'll go with you. So first he told me, don't worry. Just go and see your uh, um, charge of training and tell him you want to move to a special communication training. So I go to see this major, Puerto Rican major by the name of Angel Torres, who was in charge of our training. I went to his office, I introduced myself, I said, look, I'd like to change from the intelligence training to a special communication training. So he looked at me and said, look, Lieutenant Rodriguez, first of all, there is no such thing as special <laughs> communication training. Second, it's too late to change for any other training. You are going to Fort Hollow, Virginia, in training. And third, who told you? I could not tell you, so he threw me out of his office. So we graduated from the basic training. We came to Miami, and we were not here for a few days. We got a call from Aurora Street, the Re Army Recruiting Center, to call Major Torres immediately. When I called him, he told me, Lieutenant Rodriguez and your other two bodies, come to Fort Benning immediately. We have here Mr. Moose and Mr. Flanagan to give you a special communication training. So we went to Fort Benning, and sure enough, there were two civilians. We learned were from the CIA communication section, and they selected a building that was abandoned inside the base that was not being used. And that did, because I spoke English, but the other two didn't, uh, we had this, uh, actually was a Puerto Rican sergeant by the last name Castro, <laughs> who was the guy who translated. So we went through the training in there and then we resigned to our commission and we went to Central America. And we had boat, we had plane, we have a fast ship, later we're using Vietnam, the swift boat. And uh, we received a barge loaded with weapons from a U.S. military base in Hamburg, Germany. Uh, as a matter of fact, we were the ones who experimented with the M16 when the U.S. Army okay. was not even issued that. We have wow. the M-16 now. At that time, we were the one who told them that every time we, we, the, 
the, the rifle got with mud, it got stuck. That's how they developed the plunger <laughs> on this side. Yeah. We were the one who told them of that problem. That's when they developed the plunger wow. on this side to push it forward. Um, and for two years you, you were in this operation. You actually ran pretty significant operations against the Cubans during Yeah, that we ran one time, was in the operation right to the Cuban soil. Uh, unfortunately, we had an incident. Uh, when President Kennedy died, uh, I guess President Johnson continued the operation uh, for a little period of time out of respect to the assassinated president. And of course, Bobby Kennedy was still uh, the attorney general. And the guy who was really the contact between our team and the CIA was Bobby Kennedy. He's the one who, as a matter of fact, there was one of the director of operation of the agency who claimed that Bobby Kennedy should have been made the chief of operation because he was the one running our whole operation right. altogether. Uh, but then the President Johnson used as an excuse one mistake that we had in an operation that uh, they, they, they saw a huge boat after they could not land to do an attack because of bad intelligence. And they thought this boat in the, in, it was a Sierra Maestra, this, uh, the Cuban Merchant Marine, the, the, the insignia about the boat of the Merchant Marine, and they asked permission to, to sink it. I tried to locate our teammate, and I could not get a hold of him, and they continued to insist that he was getting away. So I told them it was my mistake, that if they verify it was Sierra Maestra to go ahead and do it. Actually, when they got close to the boat at night, they saw what they thought were miliciano with these boinas, you know, this beret, and actually they were Spaniard, and they heard Spanish, they didn't distinguish the accent, and then when they went on the rear of the boat and the flash on the left side, they, they uh, read Sierra. They didn't bother to read the rest. Right. Because they thought they definitely were convinced it was Sierra Maestra. So they turned off the light, they sh shoot the shit out of the boat with 57 recoilless rifle, with 50 caliber machine gun. They killed the captain, the first officer, and, and the, uh, the in charge of the engine. And uh, later on, we learned it was Sierra Aranzazu. And I recall, because it was a hell of an embarrassment, you know, I very happily sent the message that we had with, to the CIA called El Consejo, uh, you know, reporting that we have signed the Sierra Maestra. And a short time later, I received a message from the Consejo telling me, please advise us in what ocean are you operating? Sierra Maestra crossed the Panama Canal two weeks ago and routed to Red China. Oh, man. That one said, my God, what the hell do we eat? Uh, so that happened to be... Uh, Sierra Aranzazo. Now that's one of the excuses that right. uh, President Johnson did to terminate our operation. And he also sent uh, a, a communication to the people who were in the armed forces as officer that with the death of President Kennedy, the promise to liberate Cuba died with him. Those who wanted to stay and make a career could do it. But if not, there is no longer a commitment of the U.S. government to liberate Cuba. Felix's story continues on part two of this spy cast. Please stay tuned. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.